have with us none other than the Falto. The Fout Abides. Jason Fout is here with us. Very awesome. We should go ahead and introduce him a bit because um, he is a famous man, but he might not be famous to all. He's famous to us. He's famous to Delta Airlines. Yes. <laughs> Million mile. <laughs> Technically, the, um, the court order suggested that we really shouldn't be speaking about that, Kevin. Jason Fout is... Actually, why don't you introduce yourself so I don't actually muddle this up. Tell us where you are, what you do, uh, title, that kind of thing. Uh, I'm Associate Professor of Anglican Theology at Bexley Seabury Seminary Federation in Chicago, uh, an Episcopal seminary. I've taught there since uh, 2009. He's an Ohio State fan, so I apologize to all non-Ohio State fans out there. Kevin doesn't care about either. On the other hand, to all right-thinking people, I'm very glad to be here. That's right. That's right. Now, Kevin and I knew Jason back in the day at Cambridge. In fact, uh, he was one. He was there basically. You were, you were there a year before I came. You'd been there a year. Yeah, Fout and I started together. I yeah. think. Yeah, because Kevin was there a year before I came after. I think the chimp Simeon was the one who brought us all together by friendship. Is that right? I think that's right. I think so. Uh, Jason and I had German together with Frau Jeans. So that was pretty exciting. Yes, that's right. And I used that German almost uh, no days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How the sausage is made. Languages are quickly forgotten by scholars as much as they are by students. You got it. You got it. So uh, there, Fout and I were with um, Frau Jeans was a German woman who had married an English man named Jeans. So that was always hilarious. Frau Jeans. And confusingly, she was studying um, contemporary Greek. And doing a PhD in modern Greek. <laughs> I didn't realize yeah, the that. The strange huh. uh, pairings of, of discipline and personalities is very common in Cambridge. Yes. Sometimes yes. especially personalities. That's right. Yes, yes. Now, Jason, you were uh, doing dogmatics, systematics at Cambridge. Uh, what was your work on? Uh, well, I wrote on the glory of God and its relationship to human agency. And I especially looked at Karl Barth and Hans Urs from Balthasar. Uh, I thought that uh, the glory of God had really been neglected in uh, modern theology Bart and Van Balthasar were exceptions, but I thought that there was something related to human agency that they didn't get right. So I, I tried to repair it through theological exegesis of Scripture. Now, would you say, was it the, that the glory of God, say, say that over again. You can always, by the way, start over if you mumble. That's helpful. Uh, would you say it was neglected as in overlooked or neglected as in seen as problematic? I think overlooked. I was actually really surprised when I started looking into it how this really kind of elemental affirmation of who God is. It's, it's prominent in our primary language of God. I mean, in, in liturgy, in scripture, in the Psalms, I mean, just everywhere. It was so little was said about it in actual theology, actual sort of academic theology, uh, except for Van Balthasar who wrote, you know, many, many volumes on it. Yeah. And Barth who, who figured it prominently in his account of the perfections of God. That's right. Um, and so I, I thought, again, that they did a good job of, returning this elemental affirmation of who God is, this basic thing we say about God. Yeah. Um, but they didn't quite get it right. There was something they were missing. Mm. So finished up. Uh, when did you finish up? Well, I took my degree in 2010. Okay. Uh, I was <laughs> madly uh, writing the last chapter of my dissertation while I was also starting teaching. Uh, and of course, as a theologian, starting in my first position teaching, my first time teaching, uh, a new setting, new institution, new country, new state, left all my friends behind, mm. uh, transatlantic move. Of course, for my first term, they had me teaching church history <laughs> and liturgics. Obvious. And liturgics, liturgics, because what okay. else? 
Yeah. Um, so <laughs> nice. I was mad. Things you did not study as your dissertation. Right? Exactly. I mean, there were yeah. they were things I had some background in, but they weren't my specialties. They were what was needed, and so I was madly coming up with two classes while also finishing writing my dissertation. And okay. I think I went a little mad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was crazy. Um, at one point, I was so exhausted that I contracted the swine flu. Really? <laughs> yeah, I missed a week teaching I uh, because I, I, I was so exhausted. Could you please sit in the other side of the room, please? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Cough all over me. That's right. Oh, my gosh. Now, the book came out. The book came out. Yeah, with TNT Clark. TNT well, Clark. Go ahead right. and plug the title. Uh, it's, um, I should really know this. <laughs> this is good. It's something like... Um, <laughs> Ah. Uh, uh, just Google no, file. Yeah, no. That's right. No, it's fully alive. The glory of God and human agency, as found in Karl Barth and Hans, Hans Urs von Balthasar and theological exegesis of Scripture, available at bookshops at your local airport. Uh, get your copy now. Available in paperback, suitable for uh, Christmas gifts. Is the uh, illustrated being read on beaches, uh, you know, throughout the world? Is the illustrated version coming out anytime soon? The illustrated version, yeah. Well, it, I like to think of it as a graphic novel, really. Um, so yeah, it's it's great and um, actually. Kevin's too modest to say so, but he bought the movie rights. The movie rights, yeah. I was going to ask that. Who would star in the movie version adaptation? Tom Cruise? No, Tom Cruise is not a lot fully alive. Oh, he's alive. No way, baby. <laughs> no, I'm thinking uh, uh, Nick Cage. <laughs> Those eyes are alive, man. Steve Buscemi. There you go. And um, mm. Cindy Lauper. <laughs> uh, and and uh, and guest starring the late Don Knotts. Don Knotts is Hanser von Balthasar. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Who is Cindy Lauper? You don't know who Cindy Lauper is? No, no, I know who she is. Who's she playing in the book? Oh, yeah, who's oh, she playing? Yeah, no, she's the embodiment of the glory of God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, like in Dogma, when um, who who was the uh, the woman singer who at the end of uh, Dogma? Yeah, shows up as the human embodiment of God. Who was that? Oh, Alanis. Alanis Morissette. Alanis Morissette. So Alanis Morissette uh, at the end of Dogma, you know, was God, as it were. Uh, well, Cindy Lauper will just be the the you know the, the glory, glory of God. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, 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 she's the the Shekinah. <laughs> I'm actually thinking about getting Carl Hyacin to do the the whole uh, screenplay. Who's Carl Hyacin? I don't know this. Yes, who is this? Do you, you know? No, Carl Hyacin uh, writes. He, he's like the the. So um, so many novelists are local to a place, right? They write about a place all the time. Like yeah. the V.I. Warshawski novels are always set in Chicago. Sarah Paretsky is sort of the great Chicago novelist. Carl Hyacin is the Florida novelist. He's always writing the, uh, these these mad stories that are sort of half based in fact about these crazy people in Florida, and they're hilarious stories. And are kind of you know pseudo revenge fantasies where the bad guy always gets it in the end. Yeah. Um, but they're hilarious. Uh, it's a fun read. Uh, Razor Girl just came out. I'm reading it now. Um, this, anyway, this by the way is exactly like Cambridge, which is that uh, 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 unfortunately uh, Jason always ends up being the Fraser Crane to Kevin and me being Sam Malone and Woody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're just like, huh? What's what's that? Sounds good. Uh, yep. That's uh, so. These are books you're reading now. So novels? Yeah, it's a nice it's a nice break from the you know more serious stuff. Now, Kevin, you uh, spent some time with Fauto. What are your main memories of the Fout abiding in Cambridge? Well, we we were in that secret society that we can't name. There was that. Yes. Was that. Yeah, there was that. 
there was that. Uh, I do remember one night, Fout and I went out for some drinks, and I found myself watching the X-Files movie at like 11 o'clock at night in the theater. Fout's like, let's go see a movie. And so we hopped on our bicycles and went over, and there I was eating popcorn and watching David Duchovny. I seem to recall that was after an interesting drinking session too, wasn't it? Yes, we'd been to Because the there was another interesting drinking session, not all that long after that, when at the end, one of us said, it might have been me, something like, I know, let's go see what's playing over at the cinema. <laughs> and we roll up on our bicycles, and it's closed. They're not doing the midnight show or whatever. Well, and I'm sure if you guys had a few beverages, adult beverages. Oh, went, yeah. Went, it was... went and saw a movie. You also probably went to one of the food bands there in Cambridge. Yes. Was this the case? If you went out with Fout, you had to go to a food. Yes, yes. There was the van. Which one was preferred? I forget. Well, remember there was the van of there was the van of life and the van of death. Yes. Uh, Jason, why don't you tell our audience about we, the two? We typically went to the van of death. The van of death. Yeah. Why was it called the van of death? Because it, was, it wasn't the van of life. It was a, it was a bit dodgy, was it not? It was quite dodgy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but usually we were in a state where we didn't quite care so much. Not, not the people, by the way. The food. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, the food. The food is stuff you would never eat if you hadn't been drinking more than you ought to have. Yes. Uh, Out late on a bike, hungry. Exactly. A kebab, yeah. a chip buddy. Yeah. I mean, just all sorts. Some of kind of mystery are... meat on a stick is basically what you were getting. Something like that, exactly. <laughs> Now, now, Chip Buddy was French fries on a hamburger, correct? Yes, or in a or in a pita, with uh, mayo or chili sauce. Is this the stuff you guys really talk about on this yes, podcast? Yes, very much. This yes. is a theology podcast. This is the theology podcast. This is yeah, the opening. You should have let me know about this a long time ago. That's right. We did. You just didn't listen. Damn. <laughs> so Jason's a theologian. He's a, he's an Anglican man. Um, Kevin, something you don't know, he has another book that he's editing coming out. Nice. I did not know that. Tell us about that. That's true. Well, I'm a, I'm one of a team of five general editors. We're working to create the TNT Clark Encyclopedia of Christian Theology. It's a five-volume set due out in 2020. So we're arranging volume editors, um, section editors, and, of course, authors for all the... Um, uh, all the entries in the, the five volumes. We're also uh, uh, trying to um, attract several prominent editors-in-chief, but have been slightly less successful in that in, in that way. So how does that whole process work in terms of launching a book series? So it's, it's really interesting, actually. Uh, you know, with, with the first book, you sort of go and pitch it to uh, the editors and, uh, you know, get them to uh, pick it up or not or give you suggestions on how to improve it. But the funny thing was, in this case, with the uh, the encyclopedia, um, what happened is that the editor with whom I'd worked on the book approached me and said, look, we're, we have this project in mind. We're looking for editors. Uh, you know, I've, I've appreciated working with you. You do good work. Would you be interested in this? And I thought about it for a bit, and I got back to her and said, yeah, okay, let's do that. So, and I, I was excited about the possibilities of what we could do with this sort of a a set, and um, uh, there's going to be an online component, which I think will be key to its value. And yeah, so that's that's how it went. What is, what's the online component that you're talking about? The online component will actually be the content of all the published volumes, uh, but available online through a web portal, I think for a subscription fee, the sort of thing you might be able to get through a library or something. But then the interesting part of that is that there will be then an, sort of an annotated bibliography through which you can access a lot of the primary sources that are being referenced 
in the articles themselves. Okay. And of course, you know, in one way, it's a way to think about how TNT Clark could move some of their bank catalog because, of course, those books will, books will be for sale um, or access, uh, you know, through the annotated bibliography. But you'll also be able to access other materials as well. So in some ways, it ends up being sort of, um, you know, itself a huge annotated bibliography. You have the encyclopedia entry. You get a good introduction and overview of the topic. And then if you want to go deeper, explore some more, here are the, the next places to go. And you just click through and it's there. Now... I think that's an interesting point about how a project of this size gets going, because one of the things that that's interesting there that you mentioned is you had worked with TNT Clark before. You had worked with the 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 acquisitions editor, I think it was before. Yes, and they came to you in particular. It sounded like they were saying because they'd worked with you, they knew you did good work, and I'm going to guess part of that was that you're on time. Yeah, that you're that you're, you're not a hippie. You're yeah. not lazy. Um, which, which speaks to something Kevin and I talked about before, which is publishers want your book pitches yeah. uh, when you have a book or your dissertation. They want them. But if you're also the person who can't deliver within a reasonable window of time, I mean, my current editor at Baker said there are countless numbers of books that have been promised to be written that, ha that would have been phenomenal probably, but never made it to the shelves. And that the, the publisher stays alive by actually churning out more books. And so someone who is consistent, uh, and I guess in this case with an edited volume, they need people that know people because you got to go recruit the, the, uh, the writers of those individual articles. And so when you're saying the eventual in 2020, the five volume set, it's not as if somebody came up with that from the ground up one person and pitched it, but it was actually a collaboration between you and the publisher. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah it, it's interesting, this thing about meeting deadlines. It's actually really important. I often tell my students there are two kinds of papers. There's a perfect paper and there's a complete paper. <laughs> and the distinction is that right. one of them actually exists and the other yeah. doesn't. Yeah. And so it's important to give me the complete paper. Well, the same thing goes for PhD dissertations or, in fact, in publishing. I mean, you know, there's the perfect book which doesn't get written. Yeah. And then there's the the acceptably good book, you know, the the, the fairly good book. Yeah. And that and that does. And if you can do that on time, that's actually what publishers are interested in. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Ours notwithstanding, of course, they were all perfect. No, no, yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, yeah, the, the the first three rejection notices I got all said we couldn't possibly accept this because in light of it, we wouldn't be able to accept any other books. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. All of this would pale in comparison. Yeah, the Shekinah glory was there in the book. Yeah. <laughs> How do, you, how do you separate out the duties if you've got five different editors? That must be interesting as well, trying to figure all that out. Well, we're just collaborating and, and trying to figure it out together. Uh, I mean, you know, the whole idea is to make it um, a workable uh, amount, of, um, amount of labor for each of the five of us. Each of us are busy being gainfully employed otherwise. Um, but it's also, there's enough work to go around. But it's also good to be able to consult with each other, since in some ways at this point, we're the major motive force behind the, the volumes. Um, questions about vision and scope and direction are ones that, you know, we have to work out uh, in conversation with the publisher. But I mean, really, we're sort of charged with with the, the five volumes, with the entire encyclopedia. Are you coming up with the titles of the individual articles as yes. well? Okay. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because that, that's, it's interesting. I I was teaching this weekend systematics. Jason was, was uh, good enough to join me for some of those lectures and contribute. But I, I often find, you know, so this weekend I was going through the doctrine of God and creations with Trinity and these things. I find it's even just in lectures, 
coming up with, okay, what topics, what, what headings, what loci am I going to talk about? And it seems to me that theologians such as ourselves always tend to go one of two directions. Either the overly creative person who won't abide by any normal standards of what people expect, or the traditionally boring standards, which is we will go with just the simple, all right, attributes of God, Trinity, boom, thank you, good night, go take the midterm kind exactly. of a thing. Um, are you, are the, uh, do you find with the editing team you're thinking of some, of some new angles? Maybe not that far, I don't know. That's a really good question. I'll just go back and say briefly that I think it's important that we have the team because an encyclopedia, by its very nature, isn't going to be um, something idiosyncratic, or it shouldn't be, um, something that's purely the work of one person. It really needs to be, in a sense, a, a team effort, just because the sort of thing you're turning out is not sort of an individual uh, you know, creative work of genius, but rather, in some ways, adequately covering the field right. so that your book is actually useful to the widest variety of people. That was my so, next question, is who do you anticipate using it? Well, um, uh, we hope that it'll be useful to graduate students, to undergraduates, to scholars, especially if you're wanting to swat up on an area which isn't your specialty. Uh, anyone wanting to go more deeply into to these topics right. and just sort of have an introductory level um, uh, essay that they can uh, sort of get their arms around, whatever the topic is. Yeah. What was your previous question? Oh, just um, uh, were, were there any unique angles you were thinking about? Oh, right. So, um, yeah, I mean, in some ways, you're exactly right that um, you, you, you're really almost um, uh, required to do something which is, if not boring, at least conventional. Uh, yeah. So that, you, you know, you do have to sort of cover the field. You can't just sort of say, oh, the doctrine of the Trinity is so 20th century, we're not going to do that. <laughs> right. You know, or maybe, you know, I think that... Yawn. <laughs> yeah, or, or, you know, or maybe I don't like Moltmann, so we're not going to put Moltmann in. Right. Well, that would be a useless encyclopedia, sure. honestly, because yeah. people want to know about Moltmann, and the Trinity is actually tremendously important. Um, and so, yeah, you do need to sort of cover the field. And so the creativity you have isn't going to be necessarily content or, or that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it might be format. And I think having the electronic um, version of it with the, uh, the portal into these other sources will be one way of doing it. I think another way of doing it, though, is that we're trying to we'll have mostly topical entries. We'll have uh, also, though, a volume of uh, figures and movements and the figures and movements will come up to the present day. Mm. And so to be able to go to the encyclopedia and not only have um, an entry on Ignatius of Loyola or Polycarp or um, Ludwig Feuerbach, but also Sarah Copley, Rowan Williams, David Ford, Kevin so Taylor. Forth. Kevin Taylor uh, <laughs> might make the cut. I'm pretty sure he was in our brainstorming session. He's the coma. He's the tele teleology of the book. That's, That's the last. Right. Kevin, you spell your last name V-O-L-F. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. and, and is technically Miroslav for your first name? Because I, th I think I did. If that's true, I think I did see your name in the list. <laughs> but it's pronounced Kevin Taylor. That's the weird thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, Croatian theologians, you know, it's not it's not a typical pronounce, uh, English pronunciation. You do raise a point that that's interesting because um, I'm often laboring over which books to assign. And in a systematics class, for example, you're always looking for that, not a five-volume encyclopedic uh, type thing, but rather something more of one volume 
And I'm, I find myself at, at times irked because you'll get these books and they're trying to be comprehensive to the point that they're including things at the same level uh, or at the same, with the same length of um, attention that is probably outstripping their actual importance in the field, if that makes sense. I think so. So Augustine gets as much attention as that open one, theism. you know, the open theism or that one person that, that had that one thing that was a controversy for five years or something. Right. And there's this sense of an encyclopedia can miscommunicate its its intentions hmm. by overstating the value of something in that in that sense. I'm not saying that's where you guys are going, but but that that's always been a challenge is um, the amount of space it's taking up somewhat implies its value when it might actually not have that much value uh, in terms of its substance or importance in the ongoing or even the historic conversation. I think it's actually really that's an excellent point, Ryan. Um, I, I think part of the challenge then is differentiating between a reference work and something you'd use in the classroom usually. Sure, yeah. And so, for example, you know, I, I just use the examples I uh, blurted out. Um, uh, you'd never imagine Augustine and open theism being on a par in terms of importance. Um, and yet an encyclopedia of, you know, Christian theology would be incomplete if it didn't have an entry of some scope on yeah. open theism yeah. and also something on Augustine, of course. Sure. Um, and so, you know, in the classroom, uh, you know, you might want to assign something that's made, you know, a single author work that, you know, gives more priority to those things which are considered important to that author and which you would agree with and want to present to your students. Um, but something that is at least moving toward or, or desiring to be more comprehensive you're just not going to want to give because, you know, frankly, all of theology is a complete thicket if you're just starting out and sure. you need a guide, ideally an embodied guide, like a like a, a teacher or a co-reader, at least, who knows the stuff. Mm -hmm. And if not that, at least, a you know, a well done um, introduction to theology. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, so that you can have that kind of value laden introduction saying Augustine is actually pretty important. You need to know him whether you agree with him or not. Um, open theism might be interesting if you're doing this or looking at that or thinking about this other thing, but you know, it's certainly not on a par with Augustine, for example. Right, right. When I had intro to New Testament way back in college with Charles Talbert, he assigned us for our textbook, the Mercer Bible Dictionary. And it was kind of weird, but it was kind of cool. Like he told us which bits to read. And then we had this resource that I used often, off and on for years to look up various bits. But he would kind of use that as the textbook. So that was when, when you. I know that's a dictionary, which is different scope than encyclopedia. But I, I was surprised how useful that was. That's really helpful because, in some ways, an encyclopedia and a dictionary are like a copse of trees. You know, it's like a forest. And to have someone be able to walk through the forest with you and point out the really important trees. You know, these are essential to understanding how this forest became the shape that it is. And these other ones, not so important. They'll be burned off in the next forest fire would be it would be really important. And so, yeah, to use the encyclopedia, for example, as an introduction to theology, you'd have to do like um, like Kevin's professor did and be able to walk the students through and say, look, here's Augustine. You know, here's Council of Nicaea. Here's, you know, John Calvin, you know, give them, you know, look at them. Yeah. Uh, here are these other things. Maybe you'll get to them eventually. You don't have to get them now. And they're they're not central. Well, and this this at least indicates somewhat why we're still writing encyclopedias and dictionaries. Hmm. Um, why is Webster 
why is the first edition of Webster's, Webster's Dictionary not the only thing we still have? Why are they still making the OED, all these things? Why do we still have these the, the need to keep being comprehensive in these subjects? It's because in the end, a group of editors has to make judgment calls. And at times, things anything can be communicated differently, better, whatever, in different places. But in many ways, an encyclopedia, I like this idea of a guide because that's exactly what you're doing is the four editors are selecting writers that are helpful guides in a vast array of different subjects and movements and things. And the idea that it is a dense thicket that is, a, if you're a rookie, is very intimidating. It was to me when I was a new student. Me too. And so what you end up doing is you're saying, look, here's how we would sum it up. We're not the, the last word on this. Um, that that I no no publisher would ever even and even their own marketing and their most grandiose marketing and PR wouldn't sound that way, but they would describe it as a new refreshed uh, approach to these subjects, that kind of a thing. That's right. Now I never the Mercer I never used that. Was it? It was a one volume. Was it good? It's one volume. I think it might now be in two volumes, but it was good. I mean, I think it was kind of a standard work. That's at Mercer uh, University out of Georgia. Now, is it, you, you said it's a dictionary, so it's things like jargon, movements, so it's more just, here's a word you might have heard in class and not known, that kind of a thing? Well, it actually had like an article on the Gospel of Luke, and it would give you a little overview and even an um, outline of the book, and then it might have genre, and it might have apocalyptic. So especially for a, a intro to New Testament, it was a pretty good book, because, you know, starting then, we didn't know what apocalyptic was, and so then it gave you six paragraphs on what apocalyptic literature is. And then you could look up Daniel. And so, you know, Talbert's a, a, a big scholar in New Testament. And so he could just lecture on these things and assign us, you know, read these articles. One of uh, the unique things of living, living in the 21st century, this happened to me today. So I was going through the, the idea of the, the, what was I on? The immutable, immutability of God. The traditional concept of God is immutable. And that's when they raised their hand. They said, yeah, I just Googled this and looked it up on Theopedia. And um, their definition is different from your definition. And by the way, you spelled immutable wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, snap. That was a classic moment. So after I threw them out. <laughs> um, but this is the word, the world we live in. You used to have to pull down a dictionary. Now you have to. Now someone can, can check your spelling. And now in the case of the definition, I was going with a more colloquially worded definition of immutable. And Theopedia used a little more classically worded thing. And the problem is I found the classically worded language to be equally as impenetrable as the word itself. So I was trying to explain it better. And, but I had misspelled it in the PowerPoint. <laughs> I've, I've had it in class, something comes up and I, you know, off the top of my head, I say something and then I'll think, I'm not sure if that's right. And there's a student with the cell phone out. And I'm like, hey, can you look this up for me? <laughs> and have them kind of look it up in front of the whole class. I'm like, oh, yeah, thanks. So I use them as my, they're my Google interns, basically. Hey, hey, man, look this up. Whereas 10 years ago, you just go with it boldly. Like, yeah, that's what it is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you can't check exactly. me. Just run them over with it. Uh, but I think Wikipedia is an, is an or Theopedia is an interesting uh, issue for this book project as well, because this encyclopedia series is uh, it's not just going to give us the facts because those are on the internet now. So it's got to give a, a contribution, like you said, a guide because we don't need to know when these people were born because that's available anywhere. 
Yeah, so it'll be less like a dictionary, more like an encyclopedia for that very fact. On the other hand, having um, recognized scholars um, writing it rather than, is Theopedia open source? I not? think it, I mean, I think, yeah, it, yeah, it is. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, Wikipedia is open source and, and I, you know, Wikipedia can be good, uh, you know, and open source can be, can be good. Um, but to have, you know, recognized scholars in the guild, people, you know, with PhDs in relevant areas uh, will be able to guarantee us, I think, a quality that you can't necessarily, uh, you know, rely on with Wikipedia. That's right. Um, so, Fal, how's it going? <laughs> Sarul, Mapul. What's the state of things in the Episcopal Church? Sometimes Ryan and I discuss denominational differences. Um sort of how Methodists misunderstand Calvinism and vice versa and or what it's like with our particular group of students who have certain denominational backgrounds. So describe what it's like at Bexley Seabury. And yeah, it's really interesting. We used to be embedded in a Lutheran seminary, and so it was much more ecumenical in the, in the uh, classroom. Now, I mean, Bexley Seabury is, you know, denominationally specific. And most of our classes are, um, you know, Anglican specific. Uh, the way that our MDiv is taught, the Bible classes and the preaching class and these sorts of things, church history, most of the church history, uh, ecumenical church history, are taught by Chicago Theological Seminary and are not classes that, uh, you know, I would sit in on. And so, you know, the classes that, that I teach and my colleagues teach tend to be a lot more heavily Anglican now. Um, and we've just started the partnership. And so it's, I can't really say much about it yet. We're still, you know, feeling our way. But it's a, it's a different feeling. We used to have a lot, a lot more, you know, Lutherans and other sorts in our classes. And so we could make a lot of comparing and contrasting. Uh, yeah, I'm not... So let me let me just parenthetically say here, Kevin, I, I, I'm not sure I understood your question and would like to answer the sort of thing you're asking without getting too snarky about my own denomination in a podcast that's going to be going out worldwide. Let me let me uh, let me pick up after where you just left there. I think yeah. this, this is where we're going to go with with the multi-dominational uh, new kind of ecumenical stuff. Is that good for you, Kevin? Yep. You raise a point there about having. A variety of folks in the classroom, different denominations, and that that compare and contrast is a good thing. It's very compelling. Um, Kevin and I teach in environments where we have lots of the same things, different types of people, different sorts of folks. Uh, I'm in a multi-denominational multi-denominational seminary. Kevin's at Pfeiffer, that thing, and I find it enormously, as you're saying, thrilling to to be able to say, well, the Anabaptist heritage is trending this way in its heritage and hey you're a part of a, of a denomination that's comes from this stream would you say that this is still the case and yes it's just one person's opinion one person's experience but it's actually very refreshing rather than just saying well they're like this but they're not here so we'll just characterize them in this way and that i find even the most zealously committed student to his or her denomination having gone through an experience where there are around a lot of people who are not their denomination in an educational environment, both appreciate their own unique denominational trends, tendencies, whatever you want to say, and yet also are much more attuned to where their commonalities are, 
which is, I don't think, something that was a big factor in theological education for so long. Mostly it was you were at your denominationally owned or affiliated seminary or college, perhaps even. And so you were always around people like yourself and uh, you, you know, these cultures of interpretation. Well, we're like this and everyone else sucks. <laughs> yeah. Not that yeah. anyone ever said that, at least uh, not. Yeah, not explicitly. Here. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, or, or at least that's some of the code behind, you know, this is our unique um, faithfulness to the scriptures. It's not as if people have ceased to believe that their denominational traditions are faithful to the scriptures and they're not committed to them. It's not as if people are becoming wishy-washy about that per se. But there is this new thing, and we felt this at Cambridge because there were so many variety of different folks. And yet we were all very much committed to the same level of scholarship and integrity in the work, quality of writing and things. And we actually, we got very quickly to the point where we could make fun of our own denomination self-deprecatingly. And we could also tease someone else about what might be considered a character or silliness about that denomination. Yeah. Um, I find that new. I'm not sure about you, you guys, but I find that both new and a refreshing churn that's happened in theological education. Refreshing is exactly the word that came to mind as you were talking about it. That's how I find it. It was, it was wonderful. Yeah, so what, I, what you're saying is exactly what I found teaching um, Lutherans and Episcopalians and occasionally Presbyterians or Holiness or whatever in one class, um, <clears throat> that the Episcopal students in particular, who I knew the best, would say upon graduation that both that they really appreciate getting to know in a close way, a collegial way, uh, making lifelong friendships in many cases, they got to know, uh, you know, really committed Lutherans who weren't sort of, you know, wishy-washy about their tradition uh, and really were able to appreciate that tradition while at the same time being uh, even clearer about where they were as Anglicans and Episcopalians and and really appreciating their tradition, but also seeing that it wasn't the only thing or the only, or the only obvious thing. Uh, and I suspect very much that that's what our students are experiencing now at CTS as well. It's just instead of Lutherans, it's uh, UCC and uh, all sorts of other denominations as well. Yeah, it, it kind of gets to this idea that we really need that relationality. And if if people aren't in the room with this, then we get the straw man and we get the kind of uh, caricature develop, but when that person's in the room and can defend or explain their tradition or give a different take, you know, it's kind of that scriptural reasoning idea. It, it's all this that that we still need people and we need those relationships, and that that pushes us to learn from each other in a way that otherwise, people, you know, Methodists just like to badmouth Calvinism, but they don't really know what it is. They just like to badmouth it because it's convenient. Well, and, and I was going to say, you know, went to a Reformed seminary. We we talked a lot about Wesleyan, Arminian perspectives, different uh, th things, particularly in systematics categories. But there was no one in the room to say, actually, that's not how we we go that way, but not the way you're saying we're going that way. That's a, that that's an important distinction that often needs to be made. That it, it's not just do you have our categories correct, but is that how we characterize them? Is that how we actually preach them? So we could end up having a difference of opinion on things. And method, you're never going to convince Methodists en masse to, to suddenly love Calvin. But but it would probably be a lot more cordial, a lot more friendly, and a lot more uh, winsome on both sides if they actually knew each other better. It seems to me that the challenge in these sorts of things is always, if you're going to be critical or even differentiating, 
you need to be able to give an account of the other, which he or she would recognize and appreciate. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And so that if even, you know, if you're offering criticism or just differentiating, they can say, yes, I, I can see myself in that. Yeah. Uh, or if they're present, they can correct you and say, actually, no, that's that's not quite where yeah. we're at. This is one of the reasons uh, I spent a summer in the Rome at the Vatican studying. And, you know, when I make a video where I teach on Roman Catholic dogma, say in the Middle Ages, the kinds of things that Luther was reacting to. I'm usually encouraged because I have either Roman Catholics write into my YouTube channel, or I've had former Roman Catholics in my class, or I've just met Roman Catholics along the way. And I've said, is this how you would describe yourself? And I'm always encouraged when they say, yeah, that's basically what I would say. And, and they use it, and occasionally they'll say, and by the way, thank you for not simply characterizing it the wrong way. Um, you could be saying even the right things, but saying it in a way that's not faithful to who we are. And of course, the way I'm saying it is, these are the things Luther critiqued. This is how he critiqued it. I'm giving an account of the Reformation theology. But I'm always encouraged when a Catholic says, yes, that is what we teach. And yeah, Luther reacted to that, and there's still a divide. But it's not a straw man. And it's not, well, the Pope is just simply the Antichrist, you know, obviously, kind this, of thing. This gladness to you to caricature others and be content with that caricature, mm -hmm. uh, Rowan Williams calls using other people to think with. I, I like I that, think yeah. that's, I think that's well put and something that we mm -hmm. very much ought to be on guard against. Yeah. And it's certainly true. Um, I mean, the historian in me says it, it irks me when we don't do this with, with historical figures. I mean, I had a student famous the one time, and he and I laugh about this now. He 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 went after Augustine with both feet because he did not even consider adult believers baptism. <laughs> I just thought <laughs> you're a millennia early to to really be holding a guy accountable for this. He's, this that's not even on the radar. There's no way. He, you know, might as well um, critique his Netflix, you know, list as well, because that's that's about as about the same. It's not going to be a, a possibility for him. And Augustine never drove a Prius. Right, right sure. exactly. Oh, he was not green. That son of a gun. Well, we've uh, we've actually Ryan and I've talked a little bit outside of the show about denominational uh, influences because there's an interesting bit about Methodists, and of course they. Uh, Welch was a uh, the guy that in, kind of invented grape juice and pasteurizing grape juice. Uh, and the Methodists were developing these little shot glasses that were slanted. And we can put this up on our Facebook page, but so that it wouldn't look like they were throwing back a shot of whiskey. But they were, so, you know, and, and, you, and Ryan was mentioning something about how the Presbyterians really invented the clergy collar. That's right. So say a little more about that, because I didn't know this bit. Yeah, so the interesting thing for us is we just talked about the positive ways people of different denominations can interact, different traditions, all in love. But there, there is this unique reality in history that things backwash into traditions that you wouldn't think of. Yeah. So in this case, all kinds of churches do the do they do the shot glass? It's like it's like the the shot of Christ. Here's a beer back, you know, kind of a thing. Um, <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't say that, but still. Um, and yet everyone does this, and and most churches that are not Methodist or Wesleyan, also do grape juice. With the clergy collar, it's, this is one of those, those unique things that I do keep in my back pocket because occasionally you get someone that is simply saying, well, a liturgical church is blank and these types of things. Well, one of the great examples is, is whenever you see a priest, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, um, and some others wearing a collar, the, the, the instinct is to think that this is how they dress in the Middle Ages. But if you look at art in the ancient church in the Middle Ages or even in the Reformation, no one is wearing this thing. 
the clerical collar, meaning the, the single tab, the, you know, the black suit with the single tab. Just think of the movie The Exorcist, the, the little white tab thing. Is an invention of the Presbyterian denomination. It was invented in the, I think it was the 1840s, early 1800s at least. It was a demarker of somebody who was a preacher. And so they would walk around and that would mark them off as the preacher. And what is very striking about that is subsequently liturgical denominations and traditions like the Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and Anglicans began to wear it as well. And so what we now associate as the Roman Catholic or the Anglican collar is actually a Presbyterian collar. The reason the Presbyterians stopped wearing it, though, is because it became affiliated with more sacramental priesthood denominational traditions, and they didn't want to have that be the case. So they began to sort of pull back and you know, dress differently or whatever it was. And it's just one of those remarkable stories of a tradition that tends towards non-liturgical expressions, or at least an allergy towards these things, uh, is itself the inventor of one of the most probably, I mean, someone who has never darkened the door of a church ever would at least recognize that collar as being something to do with a Christian. And it is invented by the Presbyterians. Well, I'll just I'll just say it's actually not always the case that people would recognize it today. True. Yeah, of course. Uh, I was actually so I'm ordained as a priest in the Episcopal Church, uh, and I was uh, wearing my collar at a grocery store once, checking out on my way home from church, and the uh, the checker was sort of ringing at my groceries and bagging them, and, and looked at what I was wearing and said, "Looks like you're coming home from work." I said, "Yes." She said, "So what? So what are you? What do you do?" <laughs> and I was sort of brought up, brought up short. I'm a dentist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Auto mechanic, obviously. <laughs> right. You know, I could do uh, you know auto or diesel. Yeah, yeah. I I was just stunned, just but aware, I mean, you know, yeah. there is increasingly, um, especially in places where the Roman Catholic Church is not as common. Sure. There is increasingly a kind of cultural illiteracy about these things. Oh yeah, I can believe it. Uh, yeah. So maybe, yeah, it's it's a fading. Yeah. Funny story about that. There was a Methodist bishop who went to uh, the Vatican and, you know, the Vatican church there, and he decided to wear his clergy collar. And he was walking through St. Peter's Basilica there with his clergy collar with his wife. And, and his wife said, honey, aren't you concerned? They're not going to know who you are because you're wearing the collar. And he supposedly said, my dear, the question isn't who I am, but who are you? That's <laughs> 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 right. Just get just just give her a deep bend kiss like that that World War Two picture. Yeah, the the priest in the collar. <laughs> exactly right there. Hilariously, my father-in-law worked in Harlem in the late 1960s, or um, or it was either, I think it was Inwood actually, the far far north end of Manhattan Island, as a Lutheran youth pastor, uh, negotiating truces among street gangs and that sort of thing. And so that he was publicly recognizable on the streets, he wore a collar, a clergy collar, just looked like a Roman Catholic priest. And uh, so he'd be walking around the neighborhood uh, with his wife all the time. And he'd like go into the butcher and they'd give him, you know, extra cuts of meats and everything because I would just assume he was a Roman Catholic priest and with obviously his lover. Because they just assumed, oh, well, of course, you know. So here's a little ex something extra for your lover. You wait, know? wait, hold on. You, you said if I put on a you, you said if I put on a collar, people will give me free meat. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, Ryan, you should go to Chicago. You'll never buy your own lunch. <laughs> oh, Halloween's coming. I'm doing that. That's going to have to just free lunch for Ryan. That'd be perfect. But the clergy, 
the clergy collar bit is that's really interesting what you're saying and it explains something i've noticed in the whole jane austen type victorian setting for uh british you know anglicans the priest won't have a clergy collar on they just have like a tied silk knot type thing have you noticed that or they'll have it wrapped around their neck some kind of cloth but they're not wearing like you're saying they're not wearing the clergy the anglican high collar that we expect today yeah anglicanism was uh, a bit later to adopt it and actually the story you just told jason is much of the reason why roman catholics began to adopt it is they would be working in places like south america other places where they're walking the streets this is pre-cars in a lot of ways and they they want to be identified as clergy they want to be a beacon in that sense of we're putting an end to some of these injustices, let's say. It's and, having a public yeah. identity. Yeah. And which is why it was put on to begin with. And, and so it's interesting. It wasn't adopted as necessarily sacerdotal, something that it was sacramental, but it became associated because those who began to wear it are from sacramentalized and liturgical high churches. And the Presbyterians are like, ah, let's, let's throw it out. You know, we're not going to do it. <laughs> Well, Jason, thanks for being here, man. It's really been great. It's been a pleasure. And um, uh, the foul divides. So, uh, put on your calendar, twenty twenty, that the book will be coming out. Five volumes. That's, we're, we're, that's very exciting. That is very cool. Very good to have you here, man. Uh,